Before I begin the actual message this morning, I want to take about five minutes to share something I've been thinking about the catechism. This is our fourth week in the catechism. Uh, and I personally need some kind of uh, structure to keep this from being just one different topic after another for the next 52 weeks. Uh, so here's what I've come up with for me, and I'm hoping it may help some of you to see how each individual question and answer fits into a big picture, and that as we move along, we actually are going somewhere, and that we do have an ultimate goal in the catechism. Uh, author Daniel Taylor writes this, a story is the telling of the significant actions of characters over time. Now, three weeks ago, Matt began telling a story that we will be learning and living in as a community for 12 of the next 15 months. Uh, it, it's called the Catechism, Knowing and Living the Truth. And make no mistake, it is a story. Uh, it has characters, lots of them. It has uh, significant actions of those characters, lots of them. And it occurs over time, lots of it, uh, including eternity past and eternity future. In a sense, three weeks ago when Matt explained uh, question and answer one, he explained the title of the story. It was, what is our only hope in life and death, that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That truly is what this story of the catechism is all about. Uh, what do you mean my only hope? Why am I not my own? Uh, who is this God and Savior? Uh, why do I need a Savior? What does he save me from what does he save me for? How do I get in on this? What if I don't get in on it? What happens to me? All those kinds of questions. Now, don't make a mistake about this. Uh, I think as you've experienced already, we're going to be talking theology and doctrine, uh, words that sound laboriously boring, right? But I assure you, we will do everything we can to keep this from being boring because these doctrines form not just a story, but the story the story of all of eternity past, time, and eternity future. And it's a story of beauty and tragedy and intrigue and suspense and disappointment and love, enemies, death, life, relationships, one-of-a-kind grace, murder, justice, redemption, and a good bit of unresolvable mystery as we've already seen in just the first few weeks. Now, many stories begin with a prologue, like Once Upon a Time. A, a prologue introduces the major characters and sets the scene in which the story will take place. And our prologue is questions and answers two through five, which we began two weeks ago with, number one, what is God? Followed last week by how many persons are there in God? Today, how and why did God create us? And next week, Steve will take us on to what else did God create? And at that point, we will have introduced, through those questions and answers, the characters and set the scene for the whole story. Centuries ago, Aristotle somewhat astutely observed the obvious, that all good stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. And generally speaking, beginnings of a story create some kind of tension. Middles tend to resolve the tension, and the ends of the story describe life after the tension has been resolved. And this story is no different. The beginning, questions and answers 6 through 20, describe the appearance and consequences of tension 
between God and man because of man's sin. So the beginning involves our guilt, primarily talking about God the Father. The middle, questions 21 to 35, trace how God provides a solution to that tension by the grace gift of his son Jesus, who offers the way to remove that sin and that tension between God and man. So the middle is all about God's grace meeting our guilt, and it's more about God the Son than about God the Father. The end, questions and answers 36 to 51, describe the proper response of man to God for the gracious removal of that guilt. So the end of the story describes our gratitude, and the person of the Trinity that is most talked about in that part will be the Holy Spirit. Now, finally, many stories end with an epilogue, uh, and they lived happily ever after, kind of. Uh, an epilogue is a, is a postscript. It's a conclusion. It's a, it, it puts a capstone on the whole story. And our epilogue is just one question, question and answer 52, and it is this. What hope does everlasting life hold for us? It reminds us that the present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven, and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. And that question and answer assures us that the removal of the tension between God and us will not be merely temporal, but it will be eternal. This literally is and they lived happily ever after. And that will be the only time those words will ever be uttered and not be a fairy tale. That will actually happen. So that's what's sort of helping me to think through the big scope of the catechism as we go through it. And this morning we continue in the prologue with more about the major characters and the setting of our story. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment." Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Wow. The question for me is how can anyone, even C.S. Lewis, get away with making statements that hit our ears sounding like hyperbole and exaggeration and maybe mere rhetoric? Well, our question and answer today tells us why he can get away with words like that. It's question four. Let's read both the question and the answer together. How and why did God create us? 
God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. So why can we believe Lewis's words? Uh, There it is. We are created in God's own image. To know him, love him, live with him, all of that. You just can't do any better than that. Now, the catechism asks two questions. How did God create us? And why did God create us? And we'll take them in that order. First, how did God create us? Let me set the scene for the creation of Adam and Eve. And what I'm going to do is, uh, up on the screen, there will be a summary statements, actual scriptural statements, but I've taken out a lot of the other words to just get us through the major creation down to where God created uh, man and woman. So let me read that. You can follow it on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. Day one. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was so. And that was day two. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day three. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God saw that it was good, day four. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And God saw that it was good, day five. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, day six, maybe about noon. Now, these opening words of Scripture, we're going to read more. These opening words of Scripture set that great and mighty stage For the story that is about to unfold, the story, God invests magnificent amounts of creative talent and planning and power into the design of this cosmic stage on which his redemptive activity will be displayed. He has built here and furnished the great house of creation for man. And all of that was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 2. The last three lines were this summary of God creating man and woman. In chapter 2, he gives an expanded version of what took place at that time, and this is what that was. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good, which is sort of opposed to everything we have heard up to this point. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, wow, which is what the Hebrew actually says. This is, this is a weak translation here. This, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now let's go back to chapter 1 again, following the non-detailed account of the creation of man. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw that he had, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that's the end of day six. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, let's highlight what's happened here. First of all, it's kind of like an inverted pyramid. Uh, it moves from the, the very big in creation down to the very small. We, we begin quite literally cosmic with the all-powerful creating creative God uh, fashioning everything that exists and Steve will get into that next week. But this is one big God. Just one example. We're told, almost, almost in dramatic understatement, kind of like, oh, and by the way, God made the stars too. It's kind of how it comes across. But if there is something like one quintillion stars, that's 18 zeros. out there among those galaxies, then God's ability to whip up these, these, these nuclear furnaces with just a snap of his finger starts to look a little bit beyond impressive. In fact, we can hardly take it in. And then Isaiah actually says he's got every one of the one quintillion named. But then we narrow down in creation from the galaxies to just you and to just me. And compared to the vastness of time and space, any one of us looks pretty puny compared to that. We're sort of dwarfed by the immensity of the universe. And of course, for many people, nothing so disproves the idea that humanity matters as a simple glance through the lens of a telescope. Take a good long look outward, then look in the mirror, and you and I look sort of like a universal footnote. No wonder David said in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? You're mindful of him. But notice how the passage itself in Genesis just blows away that idea of human insignificance. Up until now, the continuing refrain has, refrain has been, and God saw that it was good. After he created mankind in his image, the refrain changes to, and God saw that it was very good. Now, it certainly wasn't anything that Adam and Eve did on their own that changed creation from good to very good. They have absolutely nothing to do with it. But it was because God created them, Adam and Eve, in his image that made 
all of creation very good. Notice also, all the previous acts of creation, they're very impersonal. Let there be, let there be, let there be. But with man, it's let us make. Before man, it's kind of like the, uh, I don't mean to be flippant here, so take this right. It's kind of like the work of a magician, and there it is. And by the way, David did say, it's just the work of your fingers. With man, it's like the work of a potter. You can, you can picture God bending down and gathering some dust and taking it and fashioning it, as it were, into a beautiful piece of artwork called man. And by the way, God reminds us through the scriptures that we are always related to the earth. We came from it. We live on it. We'll be buried in it. We'll be raised from it. We'll come back to it when it's made new, and we'll live on it forever. We are creatures of the earth. But also notice, in the previous acts of creation, each creature is described as after its kind, whereas the creation of man and woman is totally different. It's in our God's image. Man's image is not simply of himself. He shares the likeness of his creator. Now, man does have a body like other animals, but he has something else. God's life breathed into him at creation. Now, the animals also have breath, I, I know, obviously, but the point of the scripture is to stress that with the, with the God life in humans comes immortality and a God consciousness that simply animals do not have. So man is body from the dust and he's soul from the image of God. Also, only man in this passage. Only man has been given dominion over God's creation, and it is over all other living creatures. So man is distinct in authority, which sets him apart from the rest of creation. And then the creation of man is specifically noted as male and female. Uh, For the rest of creation, gender doesn't seem to be important to be told. It's obviously there, but it's not mentioned at all. But it is for mankind. I think it's because of this. The singular man, Adam, is created as a plurality, male and female. Look at uh, Genesis 5, 1 to 2 up here. This This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, notice that he named them man. The word is hadam. It can indicate a number of things. It can either indicate a a, a proper name, like Adam, or Adam in the Bible. It can indicate uh, a male individual. Matt, you are an hadam. But it can also indicate human beings generically that we are all called man, created by God, male and female. So when God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them, he's making us to be relational as he himself is relational in the Trinity. That's part of our image. And of course, the primary human relationship is man and woman in marriage, as the rest of this passage shows, which we won't get into today. But let's, let's hang with this idea uh, a bit longer. Let us make man. 
It's like a divine council is taking place. John Calvin says this. This is the language of one apparently deliberating. He enters into consultation when he says, let us make man. Uh, And he's not the only commentator. Many commentaries call this a council. Well, if it is, who's he talking to? I mean, Scripture is clear that God doesn't need any counselors. Plus, there's no one else around except angels. So he has to be talking to himself as a God of three persons. We know that the Spirit is here because Genesis 1-2 told us he was hovering around over the earth. And we know Jesus is here because Hebrews 1-2 says that God created the world through Jesus. Now, but now go back. Go back into eternity past. Revelation 13.8 tells us that in the mind of God, the Lamb, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had been slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was in God's plan. Take us back to, to week two of God being in control of everything and everything is planned. That was planned in eternity past. And if it was planned by God, it was going to happen. So now we come to the sixth day of creation week here. The foundation of the world has been laid. And with the creation of man, God is about to initiate the chain of events which will eventually lead to his son actually coming to this earth, taking on this image, living in this image, and dying in this image that they were about to bring into being. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus would be born in the likeness of men just as men had been born and created in the likeness of God. So God is very aware that he is about to make man in the very image that he would himself one day assume. So in that sense, we were fashioned in the image that God would want his son to inhabit. That should raise the value of the creation of man alone in our minds. And is it possible that that's what they were talking about? Time has come. And what's this going to be like? Jesus, you're going to live in this someday. Uh, I don't know. Time out. Change of pace here. Uh, Lift your image of God's self out of your chair a minute. Stand up. Actually, stand up. I want you to turn to someone around you in just a minute, and one of you I want to start, okay, and say, hi, my name is Image of God, Charlie. That's what you would say. My name is Image of God, Charlie. What's yours? And then the other person will respond back to you, well, my name is Image of God, Johnny, or if that's your name. So turn to do that, and then stay standing, and we'll have you do something else. Okay, now, look at the person or the persons that you just did this with, and all of you repeat, looking at the other person you talked to, all of you repeat after me. So, I don't see you looking at the person you talked to. Okay, repeat after me. You and I are much more alike 
then we are different. Because we are both made in the image of God. And that is everything. Thank you. Have a seat. Now, we're still answering the question, how did God create us? And we've come to a natural follow-up question right here. Okay, so God created us in his image, and that is the, the term that you've seen, imago dei. Uh, looks like this. There are churches that have that for their name, and there are songs like that. Uh, that's the imago dei, the image of God. But what is that image? Now, it's interesting that the Bible never identifies what qualities within man comprise that image. It'd be great if there were a chapter that said, okay, here's the image of God, list it all, but it doesn't. That hasn't kept theologians, however, from trying to explain it, which is a help to us. Some say it's because we're intellectual, like God is intellectual. And some say, uh, well, we're spiritual, like God is spiritual, and the animals aren't spiritual, so that's the imago dei. Or we've got a moral sensitivity, or we are immortal, which animals aren't, but God is, and we are. We're creative, we're personal, rational, relational, emotional, all of that kind of thing. And all of that is true. And it's, it's really good to think about that because that's what God is like and that's how he made us to, to have those kinds of traits. But no list can do justice to the subject. A full understanding of man's likeness to God would require that we know a lot more about God than we do and actually a lot more about ourselves than we do as well. Plus, when we look very carefully at what the words image and likeness really mean, we have a slightly different light thrown on this subject. Theologian Wayne Grudem says that these words, image and likeness, quote, refer to something that is similar but not identical. We get that, right? But that it represents or is the image of the person behind it. Therefore, he says this, to the original readers, Genesis 1.26 would sound like this. Let us make man to be like us and to represent us. Uh, Anthony Hukema, uh, it's another Dutchman, by the way. I love saying these Dutch names up here. Uh, Anthony Hukema wrote that the image of God describes not just something that man has, like the ability to be creative, uh, a spiritual nature, uh, all of those things that, that I listed before, describes not just something that man has, but something man is. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter one and look at the image of God again, um, we see things in, in a little bit of a new light here. The, the image is not a built-in ability or capacity that we have only. There is that, obviously. But it's a role we're called to live. God has named us as his living images. We represent him here on earth. In fact, this is interesting. Uh, not just one, but a number of linguists argue that in the image of God could just as validly be translated as the image of God, which is a totally different meaning. I love what John Piper says. He says, uh, when the first chapter of the Bible says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is the point? He says, the point of an image is to image. I actually watched him on a video saying that. He's just saying, what's an image? An image images. That's what it does. 
Images are erected to point to the original, to glorify the original. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflectors of God, images of God. Presently, 7.4 billion statues of God walking around on this earth. And he says, it's so that nobody would miss the point of creation, namely God. It's all about him. It's not all about us. Probably a number of you have been to the National Mall in D.C. and in particular to the uh, Lincoln Memorial. How many of you have seen the Lincoln Memorial? Yeah, oh, wow, almost all of you. What's the point of that image, that statue? It's to make you think about Lincoln, right? To reflect on the person he was and uh, the things he accomplished. And even for some people, it's, it's an inspiration to model their lives after some of what they know about him. Now, obviously, you and I as images, statues of God are different. The Lincoln Memorial looks like Lincoln. You and I don't look like God. On the other hand, the Lincoln Memorial is cold and lifeless. But you and I have a spirit, so we are warm and alive. Also, the Lincoln Memorial only looks like Lincoln, but can't act like Lincoln because it's lifeless. But we're created alive, and we're meant to act like God. See, the Lincoln Memorial was designed to merely depict or picture Lincoln. We were created to represent and communicate God on his earth. And when you represent someone, everything you do reflects back on that person. The command to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1 was a command to spread God's glory as his image bearers to the ends of the earth by giving birth to other little image bearers, which, by the way, we as a church are doing a really good job of. The command to have dominion over the earth was to represent him here managing the earth as he would. And our track record there as a race is at best questionable. Ryan Lochte, a famous Olympian swimmer and now the infamous, infamous storyteller, is losing all of his endorsements after he admitted to making up a story about being robbed at gunpoint while at the 2016 Olympics. Speed USA and at least three other companies ended their partnership with Lochte because of that. Uh, Speedo, who he had been with with, uh, for a decade, said this, we cannot condone behavior that is counter to the values this brand has long stood for. We appreciate his many achievements and hope he moves forward and learns from this experience. See, they no longer want to associate their brand with him. And that's sort of expected because most corporations require that they're celebrities and athletes, and I don't know if they follow through on this all the time, but that they have basic moral standards of class, honesty, integrity, teamwork, excellence, that sort of thing. An estimate from Forbes stated that Lochte could lose between 5 and $10 million from the scandal. Now, what's really the deal here? Pretty simple, isn't it? He bore the image of the companies he represented. In their mind... He was them, for them, in the world. And once he stopped representing them well, they cut him. 
Now, that raises some questions about us as representatives of God, right? Um, just hang on to that. We will come back to that. So, how did God create us? Uh, different from everything else. With a lot of personal hands-on care with us, male and female, a command to rule, a command to have babies, and to be representatives of him on the earth. So the question is, secondly, why did he create us? And they kind of bleed into one another here. Well, it wasn't because he was lonely. He was doing just fine. Um, he had perfect intimacy, perfect giving and receiving of love in the Trinity, perfect unity in his usness in the Trinity. And it wasn't because he was on some kind of an ego trip, having to satisfy some craving to be worshipped. God doesn't have a self-image issue. And it wasn't because he needed us in other ways. This scripture is just amazing. Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And that makes him so different from every other God, little g. In the Babylonian creation myth, the god Marduk put it very bluntly when he said this, that he was going to create humankind so that the gods could have slaves. That way the gods can sit back and live off the labor of their human workforce. And virtually every other god is like that. It's to get from their creatures not to give to them. And by the way, they become very nasty gods if they don't get what they want. And they're kind of like my gods. My gods can get pretty belligerent with me at times. Yours? Because they're fake. If my God of competence isn't fulfilled, it's pretty nasty inside here. In one of his many sharp-witted passages in the Screwtape letters, Lewis imagines the demon Screwtape writing the following to his nephew, Wormwood. God really does want to fill the universe with little replicas of himself. We, that is us demons, we, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He's full and flows over. Our father below, the devil, has drawn all other beings into himself. God wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. And I think here Lewis really captures the essence of God's love because love always overflows. It expands outward to include others. It reaches out to invite and it brace itself in the warmth and the security and the fullness of that love. And since God is love, that's 1 John 4. 1 John 4 does not say that God is loving. It says God is love along with a lot of his other attributes. He has no choice but to be love. So he can't not be love. And since he is love like that, he is always reaching out and inviting whoever will come 
into the warm embrace of that love. Last week, we saw that in that community of love, at the very center of the universe, the Father's the lover, the Son is the loved, and, and the Spirit is the personal expression of that love. And that love is infinite. Remember the verse I, I told you last, the uh, section I told you last week that I'm memorizing as a result of all that? It talks about the love being its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth of that love in Ephesians chapter 3. Just, just picture a box, you know, the, 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 the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. So you've got a box there, okay? Now, blow out the sides, blow off the top, blow off the bottom, because God's love is infinite, which means picturing his love means take out the sides, goes as far that way and that way, it, it never stops. And it never stops going that way, and it never stops that way and that way and that way. So it's no surprise that at some point these three persons decide that their love is so great that they want an entire universe of beings to share that love with. So despite not needing us, God chooses to create us. Jeremiah 31 says, God tells his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? It means that he has loved us from way back in eternity past, long before the creation of the world, long before you and I ever came along. It's not like he made us and then thought, Wow, this turned out pretty well. This is a pretty, this is a pretty cute dude and dudette. Let's, you know, I could love them. Nah. This whole thing of creation is a love affair from the creator to the creature who wants the response of the creature back to the creator of love. This is weak, but it's kind of like what motivates us to invite as many friends as we can to the wedding of one of our kids or to a special anniversary celebration because we just we want, we want to widen the circle of our love and our joy and just share it with as, as many people as we possibly can. A commentator on the Heidelberg Catechism uh, gets very picturesque in trying to describe this. Now, Heidelberg Catechism scholars don't usually go in for the kind of language I'm going to read for you right now. So when I came across it, I thought, I need to read this one. He says, like a shaken up bottle of champagne, so also God's love within the Trinity was so effervescent, so richly pressured and full, that sooner or later the cork had to explode out. And when it did, a river of sparkling love gushed forth and sprayed everywhere. Creation is that overflow of love. It's as if God said, let us create some more creatures so that we can then invite them to our holy party. I love that. Jonathan Edwards, who's a, a bit more conventional and subdued in his wording than that, says that uh, God's aim was to create the world for himself, or creating the world was himself. Now, because God is a giver and not a taker, what that means is God was seeking in creating the world to have himself diffused and expressed out as far and wide as he could have that expressed. And he chose to do it for and to creatures like you and me who would over the centuries and the millennium keep being born and his love could just be diffused more and more and expressed over, over people. And when we then live as he created us to live, we reflect that glory. We're representations of that glory. We're living statues who exude the glory of the one whose image we bear. We're pointing back to the original. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In two weeks, Matt will unpack this whole idea of us glorifying God when he tackles question six. How can we glorify God? In Mark chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus to uh, pit him against Caesar by asking if they should pay taxes to Caesar. Well, Jesus could smell rottenness a mile away. So he asked for a coin, and holding the coin in his hand, he said this, whose likeness, image, and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Their next question should have been, what belongs to God? And Jesus most likely would have answered, whose image is on you? And that takes us right back to question and answer one, doesn't it? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own. But we belong body and soul, both in life to death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he created us and put his image on us. Back to Ryan Lockley. He bore the image of his sponsors but failed to represent them the way they required. He reflected them poorly, so they cut him. Now, there's a problem because I have failed and continue to fail the one whose image I bear, the one I represent. I deserve nothing less than to be cut. But thankfully, my failure has a different ending. From that same trinity of love that we talked about last week, God the Son left that trinity, came to earth, suited up in the likeness that God had created in Adam and Eve. He became a human. Like me as a human, he bore the image of God. Unlike me as a human, he bore that image perfectly. And because he bore that image perfectly, he was the only one ever qualified to pay the price for me bearing it imperfectly. He kept me from getting cut. And the same is true of you. But it cost him dearly. Bearing the image of man and of God perfectly, he also voluntarily bore another image. He became the image bearer of sin. It's scandalous. I mean, it's... And as he lived out the ugliness and the horridness and the despicableness of that image on the cross, his father couldn't even look. And the son couldn't help but cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what the answer is? Because of the father's love for his failed image bearers. That's you and that's me. 
And because the perfect image bearer took the rap for all of us failed image bearers, the father now sees the image of his perfect son on each one of us. Each one of us who have by faith accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. It's Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And I want to suggest that in a nutshell, that's what this table is about this morning. Once again, like last week, I don't want to pray for you this morning. I want you to pray for yourself this morning. So uh, before you come to the table, I want to give you an opportunity to verbalize your heart in this moment. Whatever spirit is doing in your heart right now, verbalize that to God. And then in a few moments, we'll come to the table. Amen. As you, uh, and I've chosen this word carefully, as you enjoy the table this morning, because there is a joy in that. As you enjoy the table this morning, I invite you to meditate on the truth that we came to, that because Jesus, the perfect image of God and the perfect image of man, also took on that horrid image of sin for you and did away with it once and for all. Because of that, the Father now sees you as his child because you bear the perfect image of his son. That's what I'm asking you to meditate on as you come and take the elements this morning.